0: Hello and welcome to the Nodacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 12th episode of the Nodacast entitled Forgetting to be Afraid, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 2, where Daenerys Targaryen marries Khal Drogo in barbaric splendor, receives gifts, and meets his supporting cast member, as well as her dragons, albeit in dragon form. Uh, today, we are joined by a very special guest, our friend, Eliana, better known as Glass Table Girl. Eliana, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Eliana. Uh, you may know me, once again, as Glass Table Girl with underscores in between all of those words. Uh, you may also <laughs> know me on Twitter by uh, a various number of names, such as arithmetric. That's going to be linked. I'm not going to spell it for you. Um <laughs> Or Sailor Moonblood, or the shit at all, depending on what medium you've come to know me through. Um, in my time, there have been people who've called me a luminary, based on uh, you know my role <laughs> in the fandom as a moderator, as a host of Maester Monthly, as a just all around luminous person. Um, that's me.
0: Well, you also have a a website too, a, a blog. I know that you've have a, you have a number of great essays, one of which being on the Forsaken, which is, of course, my illustrious co-host's favorite Song of Ice and Fire chapter. Or am I wrong about that, Emmett? You are correct about that, sir. And yeah, I love that. I love that essay when you're talking about just the the religious themes in in the Forsaken. That was terrific. Yes. So, what is your what is your uh, WordPress site called, Eliana? Oh.
1: Right. So, because I'm really bad at this idea of. Um, you know, branding and having uh, a cohesive brand. <laughs> uh, my blog is uh, the many-faced blog. One word, many-faced with a D blog. <laughs> dot wordpress. It's got a couple of my essays, and you know, eventually I'm going to update it at some point in my life. But um, maybe with this Danny essay that I've been working on for years and putting off, <laughs> maybe now's the time.
0: You know, uh, now now is the time. And it's, uh, you know, it's a nice coincidence that this is a Daenerys uh, chapter that we're reviewing and a Daenerys episode. So maybe this will be that final push that just kind of brings you through the finish line to you finishing that Daenerys essay that I've uh, been desperately interested to read now for, you know, like 30 Like two years. years? Yeah. 30.
1: 30. Yeah. Um, you're a good friend, Jeff. Thank you for supporting (laughs) me in my dreams.
0: You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much for, for joining us today. We're uh, excited to have you on and uh, to talk about this chapter. And we thought that this chapter in, in particular would be a great uh, opportunity to have you on because this Daenerys is a character that while both Emma and I have our various thoughts on, we figure that you being that luminary that you spoke of would be the, uh, a, a great uh, a chapter for you to kind of cover with us. So thanks again for, having, for, for coming on with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course. Um, as we say in all of our podcasts, our spoiler warning. So we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds and winners sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So last week we uh, we spent about. 20 minutes, maybe even 25 minutes. I, I didn't totally record it, but we, we spent 20, 25 minutes answering some of the great questions we got on Patreon. So like we said last week, for those of you who contribute to our Patreon and thank you all very much for, uh, for those of you that do, uh, th- Those that contribute $10 or more a month get the opportunity to ask us a question if you like, and you have that opportunity available to us. And we didn't quite get to all of the questions we were asked last week, so we figured we would close out some of the ones that we got. So we have two questions this week, as opposed to four, which we had last week. Uh, Emmett, do you want to ask the first question that we got from one of our Sworn Swords?
2: I believe I do. Our first question this week comes from Sir Alex, one of our Sworn Sword patrons, and he asks... What do you guys think about Varus and Illyrio poisoning the honeyed locusts to be rid of Dany and better Aegon's claim to the throne? So far their plan to bring Dany and Aegon has not gone as planned. And here are a few passages that have me lean toward this idea. From Tyrion I in A Dance with Dragons, a quote from Illyrio Apatus What one king does, another may undo. In Pentos we have a prince, my friend. He presides at ball and feast and rides about the city in a palanquin of ivory and gold. Three heralds go before him with the golden scales of trade, the iron sword of war, and the silver scourge of justice. On the first day of each new year, he must deflower the maid of the fields and the maid of the seas. Illyrio leaned forward, elbows on the table. Yet should a crop fail or a war be lost, we cut his throat to appease the gods and choose a new prince from amongst the 40 families. And then uh, another quote from the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons, this time from, from Varys. I thought the crossbow fitting. You shared so much with Lord Tywin, why not that? Your niece will think Tyrells had you murdered, mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. The Tyrells will suspect her. Someone somewhere will find a way to blame the Dornishman. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy, King, whilst Egan raises his banner above Stormzan and the lords of the realm gather round him. So, I do like those two quotes uh, pointing the direction of uh, at least Varys and Illyrio's willingness to do something like this. I think they're definitely going <laughs> to... Square off against Dany at some point, probably in the next book. I think it's a little early for them to already be making moves in direct opposition to her, given that as late as Dance, they were still hoping to recruit her to their side and have her as Aegon's bride. And as as strong as they are as conspirators and as – despite the influence they seem to wield in Essos and Westeros alike – if they were, if they had that many pawns going, if they had that much control over events in Slaver's Bay, they wouldn't be this discombobulated about Danny to begin with, I don't think.
1: I just don't personally see, like, the benefit of varies and Illyrio um, poisoning the honeyed locust, especially in the context of, like, there was this user who phrased it really greatly, uh, user Indian indianthane95, um, may he rest in peace. He's not dead. Rip. I just don't Rip. know where he is anymore on the internet. Um you know, who talked about how Varys and Illyrio's plan has shifted throughout uh, the years and that now Danny is very necessary to it. I just, so I just think she's very necessary. Though I do really like this first quote. I haven't noticed it before. It gives me, a, like, kind of like, oh, what is the title? The One Two Walk from Omelus or, like, the lottery vibe. But I don't think that's neither here nor there.
0: Interesting. I, I, I'm in the similar boat and that I, at this point, especially from that first quote, you have um it comes very early in a dance with dragons, and the entire impetus in Illyrio's planning and Vars's planning as well by extension early on is to get didn't is to get Tyrion down to Aegon and John Connington over to the Royne and then down to Valantis with the golden company with the intent that they would then somehow get to Marine and would link up with Daenerys and Aegon would become the uh the uh, the bridegroom for for Danny, uh, of course that doesn't work itself out, and I do think that it's important to look at the sequence of events and look at the motivations behind it. Um, y- you know, you have that great quote from Tristan Rivers, which he's talking in the Golden Company um, Council, if you want to call it that, the the officers that all we'll meet up in in John Cunnington's first chapter from the Lost Lord, and he says something to the effect of. Which plan? Illyria's, the, the fat man's plan, the plan that changes at every turn of the moon. First, we were supposed to meet up with Daenerys and, or, or rather Viserys, not Daenerys. We were supposed to meet up with the Viserys and with 40,000 Tothraki screamers at his back and invade Westeros together. Next, that plan was in ashes when Droga was dead. Then we were supposed to, how was he say? Then Daenerys had birthed must- three dragons. Go No, go ahead.
1: I only remember the term, we must keep paddling on, so you keep going. <laughs>
0: No, yeah, that's 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 yeah, that's far as talking to uh, Tyrion in a Clash of Kings. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I forget. Um, but but it basically goes through these different iterations of, of the conspiracy, uh, with it being it was supposed to be Viserys first, the Dothraki, then Daenerys at birth, three dragons, and she was supposed to come back to Pentos, and that plan was in ashes. And now the plan is that we're supposed to meet her out in Marine after she's. They've learned that she's burned a bunch of cities in Slaver's Bay, which isn't 100% accurate, but it, it kind of speaks to the essence of what's going on there. And uh, and now that plan is in ashes, too, because there's no way for them to get to Marine, um, And the other thing, too, is that they're ex- this is kind of one of those crazy things, too, that it, so much of their plan relies on these assumptions on what Daenerys is going to do, that they're all going to be pawns that Illyrio and Vars can actually move, that they don't have wills of their own, which I think is... I I think a testament really to the uh, how conspiracies just simply don't work in a Song of Ice and Fire because they these pawns have wills of their own. Daenerys decides not to go to Pentos, she makes the decision to go to Astapor to get the unsullied, and then from after witnessing all the things that go down with the Unsullied and the horrors of slavery in Slaver's Bay. She destroys Astapor. She marches on Yunkai. She marches on Marine, and she creates a anti-slavery revolt, for lack of a better term, in Slaver's Bay itself when Varys and Alleyers just think that she's going to come back to Pentos or come back to Westeros to reclaim her, her crown. That's not the case, though, because she's not a pawn. She has a will of her own. And, you know, as Vars and Illyrio come to Rue, so does Aegon, too, because Aegon is not necessarily a pawn that they can simply control and move him from place to place to place. He uh, he ends up invading Westeros without Daenerys and her dragons with only 10,000 soldiers, which uh, somehow she, he's going to miraculously win a victory, I, I believe, an, an initial one, come the Winds of Winter, but it's not going to be a lasting one for sure. Agreed across the board. Um, but, yeah. So, our second question comes from Sir my lady, Emily, who <laughs> asks serious, which came first, the dragon or the egg? And then opinion. This is all in in uh, brackets, which came first, the dragon or the egg, A E G hashtag boat sex with a nice little smiley face icon that we get on there. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, the, the, both of the questions have ambiguous answers. I don't think that there's a, uh, Necessarily, hundred percent. We we can't be a hundred percent sure which came first, the dragon or the egg, or the dragon or the egg. But I I, I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I I mean I don't I don't know. I I am not a. Isn't this like a question that people like still debate right now in biology?
0: <laughs> right, the chicken or the which came first, the chicken or the egg, sort of thing.
1: Like that idea of perspective of which I am completely unqualified to answer.
0: I mean, so like this (laughs) to to the serious question, um, I agree. I'm, I'm also not qualified to answer this question, but in the world of ice and fire, you have this line from the uh, chapter on ancient history, the rise of the Valyrians, which says, Quote, the Valyrians themselves claim that dragons sprang forth as the children of the 14 flames, while in Karth, the tales state that there was once a second moon in the sky. Once this one day, this moon was scalded by the sun and cracked like an egg and a million, million dragons poured forth. In Ashai, the tales are many and confused, but certain texts, all impossibly ancient, claim that dragons first came from the shadow, a place where all our learning fails us. These Ashai histories say that as a people so ancient, they had no name that they tamed the first dragons in the shadow and brought them to Valyria, teaching the Valyrians their arts before departing from the annals, unquote. Uh, I, guess, I guess that kind of says the dragon came first, right? I mean, there's no mention that they found eggs or something like that, that dragons either sprang from the 14 flames, came from the second moon that was cracked by the sun, or came out of the shadow, right? So I guess that's, I guess that's an answer to the first question, right?
1: Unless that you consider the fact that there was that egg in the first place that cracked, and therefore the egg came before all of the dragons.
2: <sighs> Deep. I think you're
0: both right. <laughs> <laughs> and thus I win. <laughs> uh, okay, so what about the more important question? Who came first? Daenerys or John? In season seven, episode eight.
1: I have opinions. On this, surprisingly. Go
0: on. Or was it episode seven? Was that the last episode of season seven? Was it seven or eight episodes?
2: Uh, I'm pretty sure it was seven. I think that was
0: the last one. Okay. So, okay. So it it was the end of season seven, episode seven then. Who came first?
1: I will answer this seriously if people want that. We do. Okay. We do. So, you know, (laughs) granted, we don't see the entirety of the foreplay between... John and Daenerys, but we know from previous chapters of John with Ecret in A Storm of Swords that he does engage in foreplay and, um, you know, he goes down on her and she seems to really like that and she seems to enjoy. So it sa- says to me that John is the kind of person who uh, partakes in that foreplay, makes sure that, you know, the dragon comes first before he, um, you know, before he, he he gets all up in there.
2: I, I, agreed. 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 He's, a cons- he's a considerate young man, and uh, I'm sure he's probably, like, you know, thinking in the back of his head, i got to hedge my bets if I don't last that long. Make sure yeah. she comes first, and maybe it'll be less embarrassing for me. So, yeah,
0: I, I concur. <laughs> I, I think that's probably the best answer. I don't think there's really any other, uh, I think that's a great, I mean, I'm curious. So I'm curious, like in A Dream of Spring, when this actually this chapter, we actually see this chapter, whether there's going to be some clear callbacks to Johnny Gret in the in the cave from A Storm of Swords. You have to imagine that Martin, that there's a reason, a major narrative reason why this occurs. Right. In A Storm of Swords, besides it being a tender, sweet moment, probably the most romantic remote moment in the entirety of the series i mean i guess it's debatable but i would say it's probably it's up there in my opinion but maybe it has a, has a greater narrative purpose and in in, in that, that from that scene from a storm of swords where where john is uh, is going down on 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 grit and uh maybe that's that's supposed to foreshadow something that occurs come the end game of the books where john goes down on on, on the dragon so to speak
1: i mean he might have to like we don't know necessarily how he's going to be resurrected, but in, you know, the discussion about Barrack and resurrection, we hear that blood's not necessarily pumping. So that could, uh, very much put a damper on John's ability to perform in other areas. We have, I'm sorry. I just thought a lot about this after I, like, I realized what the
0: question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. That's, uh, I think you, you make a good point. Um. Yeah, that, that, that re- that's actually kind of a recent revelation, right? That that Martin said last summer that there's no blood flowing through Beric Dondarrion's veins. Um, yeah, Which really really kills all the Barrack Thoros slash fic that we all
2: live and die by. So, uh, frankly, it was a f- frankly rude statement. <laughs>
0: I, I guess I'm going to have to can't, like... Can't
2: delete. do that to your fans.
0: My, my manuscript on fanfiction.net is going to have to unfortunately come offline. Yeah. Um, not that I write fan fiction, of course, because that's what just I have, do.
1: Or maybe people just have to reassess who they think is top and who is bottom in those slash fics. I'm just saying it's like still.
0: True. That's an
2: excellent possible. point. Excellent point.
0: True. <laughs> so so you hear here first. Uh, Daenerys Targaryen came first. So says Glass Table Girl, a.k.a. <laughs> Iliana.
2: It's canonical.
0: Canonical at this point. And I actually 100% agree with that. So uh, thank you for for the questions, Alex and Emily. And thanks again to everyone who uh, contributes to our Patreon. And if you want to take a look at our Patreon campaign. Feel free to take a look at it. It's at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF to explore ways you can get exclusive episodes, early content, show notes, things like that. And um, again, like we said in the last episode, the, the thing we're going to be doing next is going to be our first Patreon only episode. And that is going to be our Barristan Throwdown where Emmett will be wrong and I will be right. And that'll be coming to you guys later this month in, at the end of April.
2: He even got that wrong. He even got it in <laughs> which one of us is wrong and right. He's trying so hard, guys. You just got to believe in him and stick up for him and tell him he's good. He's a good Mom enemy. and
1: dad, I hate it when you fight.
0: <laughs> which one of us gets to be mom?
1: You asked me this before.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the answer, too.
2: This is true. We've had this conversation many a time. There's there's no there's no good answer, ultimately. We both got to trade off and have both roles. Mm-hmm. That's Anywho, true.
0: Anyways, so again, thanks for contributing to Patreon. Thanks for the questions. And uh, next week, we'll have anoth- another uh, opportunity for you guys to ask more questions of us that we'll be happy to answer when we explore our next chapter. So, uh, barring that, we can move on to the actual chapter we're discussing, which is a Game of Thrones Daenerys 2. I'll be doing a quick synopsis, which actually is actually not that quick. And then I'll head it over to my two co-hosts and we will talk through this chapter. So... Daenerys Targaryen wed Kaldrogo with fear and barbaric splendor in a field beyond the walls of Pentos, for the Dothraki believe that all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. This spectacular and problematic, we'll get to that, opening to Danny's second chapter in A Game of Thrones thrusts readers back into the Lord of Essos. Gone are the walls, trees and towers of Winterfell were by something alien, something quote-unquote foreign. Daenerys had been warned about the marriage motto entail. Master Illyrio and Sir Jorah Mormont, a not at all suspicious newcomer, had briefed Daenerys and Viserys on what to expect. Viserys was nonplussed. When would Khal Drogo pay the bride price for Daenerys? When would he get his crown? When the Khal chooses. After they progress back to Vase Dothrak, when the Omens favor war, Illyrio replies. Viserys idiotically replies that he pisses on Dothraki omens, which causes Ser Jorah to offer a general approach, which then causes Viserys to issue a fiery threat to have Jorah's tongue out if he doesn't guard it. Before the wedding, though, Daenerys has her very first dragon dream. Viserys is physically abusing her, and then the ground cracks around Viserys and he vanishes, replaced by great columns of flame with a dragon in the middle of them. When the dragon's molten eyes find Daenerys, she woke and she was afraid. She had never been so afraid until the day her wedding came. The ceremony between Daenerys and Drogo went from dawn to dusk. Everyone drank and feasted with Daenerys seated next to Khal Drogo at the quote-unquote high table, which in reality was an earthen ramp which had been raised up outside of the walls of Pentos. Dany observes the customs and attire of the Dothraki, which are foreign to her, and listens to their voices, which are also foreign to her. Viserys, Illyrio, and Ser Jorah sit below the highest point of the earthen ramp. Viserys is visibly angry. Angry because he was served second, after Daenerys and Drogo, and then in contrast to Viserys' anger is the rising tide of fear that Daenerys is having. Dany is terrified of what she sees, strange sexual rituals, people dying in front of her, and her warrior husband sitting silent next to her, barely looking at her. In the end, a dozen men die at her wedding. Wedding gifts are brought forward. Viserys gifts her three handmaids, that of course Illyra bought, Ser Jorah brings her books on the songs and histories of the Seven Kingdoms, which are all written in the common tongue, which Danny appreciates. And finally, Illyrio Mopatis brings her three eggs green, cream, and black. What types of eggs are they? Illyrio answers Dragon eggs from the Shadowlands, beyond a shy. The eons have turned them to stone, yet they still burn bright with beauty. Drogo brings his own bride gift to Daenerys a magnificent white horse with a silver mane. Danny is thrilled by this gift, and she says, Tell Khal Drogo that he has given me the wind. Drogo smiles in response, and Danny feels jubilant. Unfortunately, her jubilance is replaced by fear again when Viserys tells Danny to please Drogo, or quote, the dragon will be woke as it has never woken before. Unquote. Danny and Drogon depart for the Dothraki bedding, with Danny whispering, "I am the dragon," over and over again to herself to give her strength for what is to come. And when they arrive at the grassy place beside a small stream, Drogo carries her off off her horse and it's at this moment that Danny begins to cry. Drogo says no, but it seems it's the only word in the common tongue that he knows. Drogo strokes her hair and then carries her to a rounded rock. He takes the bells out of his hair, and then he begins to undress her. He touches her with some affection, and finally Drogo and Danny are ready. No? He asks a question. Yes, Danny says, as she puts his finger inside of her. And that is a not-so-brief summary of A Game of Thrones Daenerys 2. So, Did we like this chapter or did we not like this chapter? Ileana.
1: Yes and no. I will Mm. always really just like this chapter based solely on that one moment in which Danny rides the horse and says, tell Khal Drogo he has given me the wind. Like, I will always love it just for that. But I have a lot of complicated feelings about the way other things happen in this chapter.
0: Okay. Emmett.
2: Yeah, overall I really love this chapter. Even more than Danny One. I think it's a great introduction to her character and the kind of themes that will be in her story about kind of cultural assimilation and getting over her fear and trying to find a new home for herself, which she's constantly doing. I love the 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 scale of it and the imagery of it are, are really really powerful and intense and vivid. And there's a yeah, there's some interesting tonal shifts where it's it's there's a lot of horrible things happening during the wedding, but then it shifts into the great moment eliana mentioned when she's she's riding the silver and forgets to be afraid for the first time possibly ever that's a really powerful moment when you like in the, in the middle of this scene which we, she thought was nothing but fear she unexpectedly finds this kind of catharsis so I, I really love the the arc and scale of it but yeah there are there's definitely things about how the
0: dothraki are depicted that i don't care for so we'll get get into that as we go i'm gonna say I'm, i feel similar to both of you in that i i, I like this chapter uh, I would actually say I like Danny one just a little bit more than this this chapter, because in Danny one I feel like Viserys is a little more sympathetic, whereas here he's just an asshole uh, throughout the entire chapter, and that the only sympathetic character in this chapter is Danny herself. Although you can make the argument that Drogo is sympathetic, but I think that Danny is really the only one there. Illyria was slimy. Ser Jorah is kind of a weird character. And we can talk about Jorah at some length later on. Viserys is, like I said before, he's an asshole. Drogo is, uh, you, you get a lot more depth with Drogo or at least some depth with Drogo later on, but I don't feel that he's totally developed. He's just a hulking, quiet, silent giant uh, watching uh, people die around him. It's, it's kind of weird. Like in the Winterfell chapters, I always feel that there's a sympathetic supporting or side character for every single chapter you know, in in Tyrion's chapter, you have Sandor, who's somewhat sympathetic, and you also have Jamie who he's jesting with, and things like that. So you know, he's he's a bad dude, but he's not uh, totally amoral or, or immoral. You know, in the, in the last chapter we did last week, with um with John, you have him talking with Rob and with uh and and with Arya, and you get these are sympathetic characters that you like. This chapter, the only one who's really sympathetic is Danny, and I do feel like that does, maybe not, maybe doesn't make, maybe makes a little, my enjoyment of Danny one a bit more than, than this chapter, but, uh, we, we can get into more depth on all these things as we progress, but, uh, this chapter is so really interesting in terms of, uh, of the themes about Daenerys Targaryen and, and what it does for her arc going forward. Because again, this is a very early chapter. This is Danny's second chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And she is one of the big three point of view characters, Jon and Tyrion being the other two. But yeah, so the themes though are interesting about Danny and what she's going to be going through throughout the rest of her arc.
2: Yeah, there's so much in here about, uh, about fear and about... Uh, watching this entire event that's supposed to be... that you're central to, but you don't have any... feel like you don't have any control over it or power within it. It's just happening to you. And, uh, you know, it obviously sticks with Danny. She brings it up to Barriston in A Storm of Swords, asking him if if he knows what it's like to be sold, because she does and still thinks about it. And uh, it's it's similar to Sansa's chapters in King's Landing in that you're getting this constant tug and back and forth between... The scale of what's going on and the limited scale of what the POV character can control. All Sansa and King's Landing or Danny in this chapter can do is read the world around her as best they can, and even that's very limited because so much is strange to them. Uh, what makes it different from Sansa is that she immediately gets an outlet within this culture that Sansa is, is really deprived of. Uh, Danny immediately gets the silver and uh, you, you start getting a sense of how she could possibly assimilate and find herself a role, whereas mm-hmm. Sansa doesn't really get any kind of outlet until she meets the Tyrell women in the Storm of Swords, and that is even that is like immediately taken away from her. Yeah, but it's yeah that that, that fear and isolation really really stands out strongly in this chapter, and uh, the story of Dany and over the course of a Game of Thrones is how that starts to change and how you know she starts to lose that fear and isolation, but then it comes back you know, later on, like when she's trying to. Tell the Dothraki why don't you just you know, just marry and live like Westerosi do with the the the, the women you're you're attacking and so she, it's it's so much of her story in Game of Thrones is this kind of give and take between her the intimacy she's kind of establishing in the Dothraki Sea and the isolation she still feels.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. There's um, a lot of themes that surround, uh, like you were saying, that cultural assimilation. And I kind of see it through the lens of the exchange, playing on many different ideas of that word, um, such as the cultural exchange of, you know, this is the first time that we're really coming across a culture that is markedly different from the Westerosi. Um, Mm. Even though we're seeing it through... To an extent, an associate, associate point of view, because Daenerys has grown up in the Free Cities, um, so it's seeing that sort of idea of that cultural other, and also how, in this moment, she's being exchanged, like through this marriage, like she's being bartered for that power that you are talking about. Um, you know, Viser- Viserys is hoping that he's going to get a military, he's going to get martial physical power through it through all this. Um, And then we see a lot of people giving, like, wedding gifts, hoping to barter um, and buy favor from Daenerys, from Khal Drogo, through uh, all of her bride gifts. And then we finally begin seeing, like, from the way that the wedding is set up, how Danny is, like, set up upon the Dace, and, you know, Illyrio and Jorah and Viserys are sitting down there, and that, like, really pisses off Viserys because everyone's offering all the cool food to her first. (laughs) Um... And not to him, and you know what is that price that's paid for power, which is a running theme throughout uh, Danny's story of like only death can pay for life, or everything else that there's a price for every choice she has to make, and you know all of these different ideas. Like her story is one of dichotomy. So you have this this wedding. Um, you have Danny at the cusp between. What it ne- girlhood transitioning into, I guess, this rite of passage that some might see into womanhood. Mixed, mixed feelings about that. And then, of course, we have <laughs> this wedding, um, which should be a moment of joy uh, juxtaposed with death. The first wedding of many that involves <laughs> death. I mean, there are, are a lot of weddings that the Dothraki would consider to be extremely exciting affairs and Westeros. (laughs) Someone should invite them to those. Um, That's the real reason they're trying to go to Westeros lately. They're like, whoa, I heard that weddings are fucking lit.
0: So I have to to ask, because this just popped in my head. Do you think in Danny's second chapter that... uh, Ileana, do you think that George is saying here in this chapter, like, hey, if there's a wedding going on, like, is, is this supposed to be a a forerunner to things like the red wedding to the purple wedding in, in George's mind as he's as he's thinking through like crafting this chapter
1: I don't know if it'll always be death like um you know we see another wedding of Danny's later on and remarkably no one seems to die if I'm remembering <laughs> correctly um she's not pleased about it but the idea that weddings are not an occasion of celebration for many people, especially you know people like Danny, who talks about you know as Emmett pointed out, there's a lot of that fear that's central to the whole thing, and there's fear that fear becomes expanded to other characters in some of the other weddings that we see, but um, for Danny, it's that feeling of that lack of safety. Um, as Emmett was saying, being sold as Sansa is, but you can see, in my opinion, a lot of similarities. Between how Sans and Danny navigate the world because they are victims of abuse and that colors how they see everything in that that world around them, that isolation that yeah again is a big part of Danny's arc. That's she's the central character here. She feels the need to constantly make her own decisions. Um, I went away from the question. That's okay. Lol. Um, <laughs> but that fear, that isolation. I mean, it's such a big part of her story. That's why it could be published as its own novella, uh, initially, and that's something that becomes really marked later on as she rises and even when she gains power, not just when she doesn't have power, when she gains power that makes her different from others. I
2: think Eliana made a great point about the dichotomies in Danny's story, and I think that's what Martin is going for more than any anything else with this wedding scene of juxtaposing the what's supposed to be a, a joyous or at least life affirming occasion with the multiple deaths that go on. It's supposed to be getting her used to this idea that seemingly contradictory ideas can coexist. There's that great line that everyone always comes back to from Jojen and Mira in Bran's second storm of swords chapter about if ice and fire can mate, then you can both hate and love the land. And you know, about seeming seemingly oppositional dichotomies that end up swirling together. A lot of what, Dany experiences throughout the whole series is about that when she's trying to be both the mother of dragons and a planter of trees, when she's trying to work her way back to Westeros, but still do right by what she's doing in Essos. And this is the beginning of her story. So the dichotomies aren't really captured in her. It's more what she's witnessing and what she's taking in and how they're kind of informing the worldview that she's going to bring to those later decisions.
0: There is. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I, I do wonder whether... You know, I I wonder whether George kind of I don't know the best way to put this. I I, I do. I wonder whether George has captured that kind of transitional stage for Danny between girl and woman in the in this chapter. It's kind of a it's a it's a difficult thing because Danny is only what all of like thirteen years old, right? In this chapter, so does he does he kind of stick the landing, so to speak, on the, on the literary side to show either the societal pressures that are being put on Daenerys or in Daenerys' own internal monologue where she, I mean, she says things like I am the dragon, I am the dragon, I am the dragon over and over again as she's being led away to to, to kind of her adulthood, for lack of a better term. Does he kind of stick the landing, though, in, in your guy's opinion?
1: And she's the dragon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think overall, overall, I think he gets her perspective across really well. Like, um that sense of isolation he does really strongly, uh, but at the same time you start getting these hints that she's being put above Viserys. I mean, that's something we talked about, Jeff, when we did our episode on Danny One. Yeah, that if you just look down at the, if you just run down the facts of, of what's happening in Danny's first couple chapters, it seems like Viserys is the main character. If you didn't know Danny was the POV, if you didn't know she was going to be the mother of dragons and take over the story. Uh, Viserys seems like the one with the more traditional, you know, fantasy arc of the Exile Prince in return. But Danny's starting to get these hints in her chapters that she's really the central focus here. And especially as they start shifting into the Dothraki Sea, that Viserys himself is going to be more and more an also ran, and, and she's going to be the one who rises up. But at this point, uh, like I said, those hints are mostly for us. I think, as we've been saying, she's mostly in this isolated uh, young position of someone who's being just given away and doesn't really have any authority over what's happening here.
0: Yeah. No, I, no, I, I, I agree with that. So not only is, is this marriage in exchange in Viserys's mind for, uh, Getting his his army to take back his father's throne, but it's also a cultural exchange too. So the the Dothraki, as we're introduced in this chapter, well we we do get an introduction to them in Danny One, but we get a major introduction to them in, in this chapter. Uh, a, a lot of people like look at the Dothraki and they see either the Mongol horde or uh, you know in, in in more ancient times. Um, the uh, the Huns and 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 what they did during the Roman Empire time and in, in the fifth century, but they're also in in China as well, which is what current historical research indicates. But they're actually not totally. Um, they're not Huns. They're not. Uh, Mongols, as George has said, he said, quote, the Dothraki were actually fashioned as an amalgam of a number of steppe and plains cultures, Mongols and the Huns, certainly, which will be referenced before, but also Alans, Sioux, Cheyenne, and various Amara Indian tribes, seasoned with a dash of pure fantasy. So any resemblance to Arabs or Turks is coincidental, while well, except to the extent that the Turks were also originally horsemen of the steppe. Not unlike the Elans, the Huns, and the rest. There do exist many other cultures and civilizations in my world, to be sure. The peoples of Yi-Ti e. have been mentioned, as have the, the Jogos-Nai. I am not sure to what extent those people will ever be present in the story. However, their lands are very far away. I, have also, I also have peoples and tribes that are pure fantasy constructs like the Carthene and the Brindled Men of Sothorios. In general, though, while I do try and draw inspiration from history, I try to avoid direct one-for-one transplants, whether of individuals or of entire cultures. Just as it is not correct to say that Robert was Henry Eighth or Edward Fourth, it would not be correct to say the Dothraki are Mongols, in my not-so-humble opinion anyways, unquote. And that comes from his uh, It's Not a Blog, which is what our podcast name is modeled after. So does this horde of Dothraki work as, say, compared to the Wildlings, for instance, as we see in A Storm of
2: Swords? Uh, for me personally, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a, a glaring comparison, is that the Dothraki Uh, really are kept under glass compared to the wildlings. I mean, it's, it's all well and good for Martin to say that they're not just historical one-to-one that they're, you know, written out of a bunch of different sources, but he never humanizes them in a way that makes that clear to you. Whereas with the wildlings, you do get this process where you realize they're not just uh, stand-ins for barbarians from, you know, from Conan or something that they have a lot of, they have they have stories worth telling, and they have stories worth being told specifically by them. Uh, you know, there's no equivalent. Like I think of that moment when they the wildlings in the in the camp, Mantis camp, sing "Last of the Giants," uh, and like he gets crying, and John says, "Why are you crying?" There's still hundreds of them, and she just can't even explain how wrong he is about. What that means, like, there used to be millions They used to have the entire continent, and now they're down to hundreds, and there's never that moment for the Dothraki. There's never the moment where we see, oh, our POV uh, has, has a very kind of limited lens on what's going on around them, and that lens is challenged in a way that furthers the drama and humanizes the characters. It's just the, the distance is kind of a given, and that and Daini evolves to bridge that gap, but the Dothraki are never shown as as people within that process, it's just Danny learning to take on kind of certain bits and pieces from Dothraki culture. It's a very one way street, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's I'm sure there's arguments to be made for why that's deliberate on Martin's part, but I think the overall I think it over I think overall it hurts the story and makes Danny's chapters less interesting than they otherwise could have been.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, like you can offer to some extent the benefit of the doubt. I think like Atwell talks about in race for the iron throne which is amazing and I'm I assume all of you know it and if you don't you should know read it. it yeah you should read it um and he talks about like the complication of the view of the D- D- dothraki who are presented um he says here presented here as sophisticated culturally flexible people who can put on quote-unquote rich fabrics and sweet perfumes when they visit their second homes among the palaces of Pentos and um, how they have their own culture and it's wealthy and um, how Danny and the audience miss some of this complexity uh, through this initial glimpse. But I think that my issue is like same as what you were saying, Emmett, that like they never interrogate that idea. Um, I think that something that I would pull out in what Martin says in this quote of Inspirations of the Dothraki. He says, seasoned with a dash of pure fantasy, I would say that he leans in very much into this idea of the fantastical and in many ways that idea of barbarism uh other cultures that aren't necessarily western coded or similar to what people think of when they think medieval europe medieval european fantasy that the dothraki lean very heavily into that and are built out of that conception of oh this is different and as you're saying we don't have we don't have Egret crying, um, that emotion. You don't have those individual characters that you could say, "Oh, this is definitely what X character wants." You know, this is what motivates. This is what motivates, like uh, That That's that, that's his name, right? Yeah, yeah. Recaro. Recaro. This is this is what motivates Erie. Um, this is what this person's really. This is their essence and core, um, and you can see that amongst the wildlings, and it's uh, it's very much missed. Among the Dothraki,
0: I, I agree with both you guys in that the Dothraki have—they—they they don't have a great uh, foundation. And, and the thing is, is that in this chapter and in some of the succeeding chapters, you have the Dothraki portrayed as barbarians, and then when Danny and Drogo's relationship gets close, they almost take on kind of a noble savage role almost not not consciously on Martin's part I, again like we talked in our dance versus storm episode i don't think that martin is intentionally going for this orientalist perspective but it does kind of come through subconsciously and that is kind of something um that you know michael was saying in that you know some of these folks are that, that we see in Essos are, are more conceptions that you would see like in a, in a Conan the Barbarian story from the 1930s, where you have a foreigner, Westerner type person interacting with, with an Eastern culture. And again, Martin has said that A Song of Ice and Fire is the story of Westeros and is not the story of Essos. At the same time, I don't feel that the Dothraki are especially fleshed out. And you know, the a lot when they get back to Vase Dothrak, one of the first things that Danny notices is that all the stolen um, pieces of culture and art and um, religious symbols that the Dothraki have they have all of the gods and the idols that they've taken from different cultures in Vase Dothrak, which you know. It, I understand what's going for and that's kind of a cool image at the same time it doesn't speak to like a specific dothraki culture. And the other thing too about the Dothraki even in something like the World of Ice and Fire, it's basically said the Dothraki just emerge out of the doom of Valyria without any real history behind them. When you get like the history of the Valyrians, Martin dedicates an entire chapter to the formation of Valyria and the freehold their form of government, how they evolved to become dragon riders and these types of things you would hope that you know that there would be something a little bit more to the Dothraki than what's seen in, in the text and it, it does it, it is striking here I, I, I think that Martin has the ability to course correct a bit come the Winds of Winter because we can be fairly sure that Daenerys Targaryen is going to have a significant Dothraki arc in, in Winds as she is uh, in her final chapter in Dance she encounters the uh, the Kallassar of uh, what's his name gosh, I always forget these names. It's uh, Jaco. Jaco. She, she encounters Jaco's khalasar, and it'd be great to have her come back to to Vase Dothrak in the Winds of Winter, and you get more of the culture there as it progresses. Uh, again, it's, it's not intentional on Martin's part that the Dothraki seem kind of one note of being these conquering, thieving barbarians that eventually morph into kind of the noble savage archetype. But it does leave some to be desired, especially as we're, we're going through some of these early chapters in A Game of Thrones.
1: And I kind of wonder if, like, part of what's holding Martin back is he does a great job of um, showing different perspectives. Like, you can see that he's very much chosen uh, POV characters who are not necessarily within the normal power structure. But so I've been reading uh, this book called Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones by um, medieval scholar Shiloh Carroll. And she talks about how uh, Martin was asked about the two dimensionality of the Dothraki. and Martin says, I haven't had a Dothraki viewpoint character, though, indicating that the internal view of the Dothraki would be different from the external view provided through Daenerys. Yet Marvin has no plans to resolve this issue. I could introduce a Dothraki viewpoint character, but I already have like 16 viewpoint characters. So yeah, as you said, maybe this can be something that he figures out how to address in wins because he does it for the wildlings who don't have POV characters, but you know, we'll, we'll see.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, i certainly hope that Martin puts a greater focus on the Dothraki and more of the culture there, but I I don't know that, that quote, I remember that quote, it came from a 2013 interview that Martin gave with um, Charlie Jane Anders and uh when Martin was talking with her, he, it's very late in the story. So he was already writing, most likely he was writing the Dothraki mm-hmm. portions for the Winds of Winter. So I, I'm not super confident that we're going to get a lot more on the Dothraki culture. Probably a lot more plot points as we're going to find out. Um, there's there's a great line from The World of Ice and Fire, which talks about how when Daenerys, how they're supposed to be in, at the end times in Dothraki. Um uh, eschatology there's supposed to be a call of calls that's supposed to bring all the khalasars together which most likely in, in this case is going to be Daenerys Targaryen who's going to be the Khaleesi of calls but I, I, again I, I just I, I fear that it's probably not going to be fleshed out to the extent it, it could be fleshed out
2: yeah I agree I think I think it's mostly going to be it's mostly just going to be in service of Dany's arc which is what we see here um which is certainly appropriate to a large extent because she's the protagonist and it's her story, but it does, it makes things, and I feel this way about the Giscari too, that makes things dramatically easy on Danny in a way, where she's, you know, her base assumptions aren't really being confronted and challenged. And she's transforming and she's, you know, going through development as a character, but it's almost all internally motivated and there's no one outside her, like an egret or a Mance or a torment, to kind of prod her. In a in a more considered direction, it's almost all internal. But it you know within this chapter it does. It's disappointing on its own, but it does I think get the job done of setting up Danny's arc for the rest of the book and indeed the rest of the series. Uh, you see these kind of these these structures developing over the course of this chapter that I was noticing a lot in reread about you know, the entirety of this chapter is about. Winnowing, winnowing things down for Danny. She starts out out under the open sky because, as, as the the book says, the horse lords might put on rich fabrics and sweet perfumes, like the, that that will quote when they visited the free cities. But out under the open sky, they kept the old ways. Uh, so it's this progress of all, Drogo's entire khalasar coming together to bear witness to this, and for Danny to bear witness to them. You know, there's this theme that goes on in Danny's Dothraki chapters about. You know, that there's no privacy in a khalasar and that everything that's important has to be done in the open air. So it's, it's, it's a, you get the sense of it's a communal event. And I think that is, as Eliana said, what Atwell was trying to get at. There is some interesting ideas going on with the collective portrait of the Dothraki in terms of how they function as a people. It's, for me, it's the individualization where it really starts to break down. Um, but you do, you do get these, yeah, recurring themes of, uh, all things of importance in a man's life must be done beneath the open sky. And there's a sense of this is how Danny's going to assimilate, by taking part in this very large public ceremony uh, that gradually becomes more private with her and Drogo. But it, it has to start with uh, everyone seeing and everyone taking part and everyone kind of buying in, so to speak. You know, there's that moment when she's riding the silver and all the Dothraki are or, or hooting and lunging and jumping out of the way and calling things to her. And, like, that's the moment when... Uh, the Kalasaur as a whole seems to accept her, and so that that structure, just purely in terms of Danny's POV and how it develops over the course of the chapter, I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, for sure, and uh, it's it's interesting that they do kind of draw generalized portraits around the Dothraki, and that's interesting too. One of the the, the characters they kind of draw a, a bit of a, a stronger portrait around is uh Viserys though who's also witnessing what's going on with Daenerys and being placed in a in a role that's that, that he feels is below his station so to speak and he's literally below the station in the uh in the wedding feast cuz he's he's below Daenerys and and Drogo in the uh and the earthen ramp that they the Pentoshi or the Dothraki it's not made really clear construct outside of the city of Pentos.
2: No, I agree that Viserys is kind of Viserys serves as a marker of this transition, right? He's there to Articulate the view that the uh, the culture Danny's entering is shallow and, and nonsense and ridiculous, and that she has to be the one to learn at least somewhat better than than he does. He's he's mocking Dothraki customs and doesn't understand. As Jorah tries to gently explain that you know Drogo doesn't see this uh, as as a as a purchase as a direct sale. This is more of a gift, and he'll give a gift to you later. So, Viserys is uh, very much set up as a cautionary tale for Danny in this chapter. I think, like you know, this is who. This is who you could be if you don't learn, if you don't develop, if you don't try to improve on yourself. You'll just become this this bitter, isolated person who has, has no connection to anything around him and is just blatantly being lied to.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, another thing that's really interesting about this chapter is the, uh, the intimacy. It kind of transitions throughout the chapter and it, it starts in big ways uh, of being kind of a... Everything is done in the open air, in the in the in the open grass, because everything of, of substance has to be done with uh, with everyone watching. But it kind of progresses from there, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. It goes hand in hand with the assimilation. I think you see those two structures working together in this chapter. As as Daini, uh, gets used to the idea gradually of assimilating into the Dothraki and starts to push away from Viserys, who represents the unwillingness to do so. You also see the the scope of the chapter changed to reflect that it starts off with quote Danny had never felt so alone as she did seated in the midst of that vast horde so there's a, a classic contradiction of being alone at a party you know this this is this is the collective effort we're all here we're all together this is who we are as a people and Danny feels as though she has no connections to anyone and feels completely alone and isolated and the the conversation around her uh, is, is, you know, Illyrio and Jorah and Viserys talking, and especially Illyrio, they're very florid and cynical and kind of talking around what they're saying and lying to one another, and that's the kind of tone of the dialogue. And gradually that evolves over, over the course of the chapter as Danny's kind of heart starts to thaw towards what's happening to her when she starts getting the, the gifts. She gets those books from Jorah. And that's a great contrast. Like if Viserys represents the the worst of longing for Westeros, the way it can make you just sour and angry and entitled and violent, then that, that gift of, of the books from Jorah is the the flip side to that, right? It's the, the generous way of thinking about home. It's the, the the connection that Dany's longing for. It's something real. That's that's, that's Those books are uh, closer to Westeros than anything Viserys has ever given her. Like that's that's Jor, with that simple gift, Jorah has taken her closer to home than Viserys ever will. And then Drogo gives the gift of the silver, uh, the, <laughs> the beautiful horse uh, to Dany, and she she rides on her own. And that moment we've come back to a couple times where she she forgets to feel afraid, and that's the moment that really shifts her her, her understanding of what's going on around her starts starts to click a little bit, and she has that that great line about. Uh, Tell Cal Drogo he has given me the wind, and there's a little detail that Illyrio strokes his beard when he relates that the Drogo as if he's thinking, hmm, there's more to this girl than I had anticipated. She's being more than just a useless pawn. She's coming up with her own clever catchphrases. <laughs> I did not see this coming. And she sees Drogo's smile for the first time. And that's a great moment. I love that, like Danny has has cracked this reserve and has has surprised people around her for the first time, and surprised herself. And like it's that so again, a, a gradual thawing, a gradual intimacy opening up throughout the chapter, and of course the ultimate example of that is when she's alone with Drogo, so it's pared down to just the two of them, the The Horde is not there, the Kallisar, all the politics, Viserys' dreams of Westeros, Illyrio's plans, they're all, you know, those are all of course still present in the back of our minds, but in the scene it's just the two of them, and... Uh, that's so perfectly reflected by the language. It's just boiled down to to no and yes. That's just these most basic concepts. The first words you teach kids, the most basic moral concepts, they're like, they're paring down the relationship to the most elemental concepts. Uh, and that's that's something I think is, really makes the chapter dynamic in terms of its motion that you can sense a change in the scope evolving over the course of the chapter. I think it makes it, very kind of lyrical and lovely, and the sudden you can feel both the noise of the Kalisari and the sudden hush when it's just the two of them. Yeah. And I think it's a r- really important touchstone for Danny going forward because she's going to be struggling with uh, both of these forces throughout her story: this uh, trying to assimilate, trying to be intimate, when to pull back, how much of yourself to give up. Uh, you know, should she should she marry Hisdar for the sake of her people, or marry Dario for personal desire? and that that all really all really can see all those themes baked into this chapter and into, into how it's structured and how it flows.
0: You you know it's interesting about the uh, the things you you were you're were saying a lot of what Danny's conception of Westeros is based on is on these physical things, right? You remember in in a Storm of Swords, she refuses to give up her uh, is it her mother's crown, Rhaella's crown uh, to the Estepori in ex- in exchange for the Unsullied. Um, that's something that she will not part with, and it's it's interesting to me that the the books that Jora gives are a, another tangible thing that Danny can hold on to that remind her of Westeros that bring her into this idea of being Westerosi because for all intents and purposes she's born in, on Dragonstone but she doesn't do she she's never been to Westeros proper she doesn't remember dragonstone the her earliest memories of her be, are of her being in bravos at, at the house of the red door with the lemon tree outside which of course is in bravos and nowhere else and uh but the, he, she has these tangible reminders whether that's going to be the books she has is crown or someone like Sir jorah mormont who she still feels affection for even after she dismisses him from a service from her service after uh it's it, he's it's revealed that he's been informing on her the entire time and eventually like Sir Barriston becomes that character of her as well that kind of tangible connection between her and, and Westeros that I think is uh is something that's, that's that's interesting you know when you when you talk with when you get from Ned's perspective his ideas of what is what is home are, are there are things like Winterfell but they're also conceptual things as well things that are going on and in his mind of what it means to be Westerosi, but for Daenerys, it's a very they're, – they're very tangible things that, that are that are occurring for her.
1: Yeah, um, first uh, – so I believe it was that Viserys and Danny had to sell Rael's crown and that's what broke Viserys oh, is, is what it? she says. And it's, it's the crown that she's given by, I believe, the Carthene that she oh, really? refuses yes. to sell yeah.
0: – because
1: My bad. no, it's all good. Uh because she says that she has witnessed the selling of a crowd once before and that it broke Viserys and she does not want to do that again. Um I guess give up those trappings of power. But I I do wanna talk about, like, you know, how Jorah gives Danny uh those books and you know, we were talking about how Viserys his stories of Westeros are not close to the truth, and how he refuses to really um become a part of Dothraki culture, but and how you were saying that those books are those are Westerosi culture. The stories that we live by, that we internalize, those are intimately a part of culture. And it's interesting that Jorah is the one who gives those to Danny as he in many ways later on sort of becomes this uh cultural con- concierge for Danny when it comes to navigating Essosi and Dothraki culture. So in some ways he's sort of being that bridge for Danny with all of these different cultures. And then he betrays that trust and that intimacy.
0: (laughs) 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 No,
2: that's a great point. I love how you put that as a cultural concierge. That's true. That happens uh, in Karth, It happens when they're on the boat. It happens regarding Slaver's Bay. And a lot of it's driven by jealousy, of course. Like Jor doesn't like her talking to any other man. But he is, he's, he's almost, Jorah's almost like an NPC a lot of the time. Like he's, oh, I'm in a new village. I gotta get more information about this in my RPG. And Jorah's like, hi, hello, I'm the helpful villager. You can ask me questions about this area. Um, but yeah, I mean, and uh, speaking of the, the gifts that Danny gets in this chapter, uh, that leads nicely into our section on groundwork and foreshadowing for the episode. Uh, because, of course, the uh, most prominent of the gifts that Danny receives are the three eggs from Illyrio, which, as we know, later on in a miraculous event at the end of the book, hatch into Danny's three dragons. But uh, it was not always supposed to be executed in this regard.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, you know, you'll talk about you'll see people talk about like, did Illyrio know that the eggs were going to hatch? He might not have intended that at all. As Jorah says, you know, if Illyrio had known that those eggs were going to get hatch, he would have sat on them himself until they <laughs> did. Um, but I think that a big uh, piece of information that points to that is that originally um, in that 1993 letter that George R. R. Martin wrote, uh, Danny does not receive the dragon eggs as a gift. He writes in that letter... They talk about how Danny eventually she will then flee with a trusted friend into the wilderness beyond Vase Dothrak. There, hunted by Dothraki bloodriders, blank and blank, who are as of yet unnamed because hashtag gardening, of her life, she stumbles on a cache of dragon's eggs. The birth of a young dragon will give Daenerys the power to bend the Dothraki to her will, Then she begins to plan for her invasion of the Seven Kingdoms. Lol. Um, (laughs) And then we also see that in an earlier version of A Game of Thrones. A user on Reddit, underscore Honeybird, whose perusal of the manuscripts at the Cushing Library have been incredibly helpful to a bunch of theories in the fandom. Uh, She says she's, uh, I'm going to make a comprehensive post about the whole thing when I'm done, but I did find one potentially significant change today that I'm too excited to keep to myself. Daenerys does not get dragon eggs as a wedding gift. There's no mention of dragon eggs in any shape or form in Daenerys, too. The only gifts she receives are her handmaids, the books from Jorah, the weapons from the Blood Riders, and the silver horse from Drogo. That's it. And I think that it's really interesting that she says that in this earlier version of that Danny 2 manuscript, that the dragon eggs are still largely absent, considering that in the eventually publicly released, published version of the Blood of the Dragon novella, which contains Daenerys' journey in uh, Game of Thrones, uh, her wedding actually isn't included in the novella. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily because it wasn't written yet, or um, it's apparently... Ref- Her wedding is referenced throughout the novella, but it's not in it. It might have been cut for reasons due to length or whatever, but it it's... Those dragon eggs were not originally gifted by Illyrio. They were found.
0: You know, it's... It's always... George's style is, is, is a gardener, as you say, and it, it develops organically where he he comes up with new ideas as he progresses. And I do wonder whether, you know, last week we talked about the potential that John and Rob's encounter in John's second chapter was written at the tail end of A Game of Thrones after George thought that, hey, we need, to have a better foundation and strength relationship with John and Rob so that John has a reason why he would want to potentially flee south from the Night's Watch and abandon his vows in order to join Robb Stark as he attempts to avenge his father's death. Uh, This reads almost like that George came up with a better idea because it does kind of read the way the the original letter is. it, It reads not... It reads kind of cliché. Danny finds dragon eggs. Yeah, it's bad. It's, bad. it's really bad. That's what
2: it is? <laughs> it would be extremely unexciting.
0: No, it's 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 not good. Um, it's much better that she gets the dragon eggs from Illyrio. And there was actually an interesting um, thing, somewhat recently, that I saw. In that uh, George has asked whether the eggs that Illyrio gives to Daenerys were. Um, the eggs that were pilfered from the um, the tourney, which is in the the mystery night, um, the one that's uh, the ones that were uh, supposed to be the the gifts if they won that whoever was supposed to win the traders' tourney, there and he says, oh, I'm I'm not going to answer that question, uh, but I think it's it's uh, there's there, it opens all sorts of possibilities theory wise about where did Illyrio exactly get these eggs? He claims that they're they're from the shadow lands of a shy. Uh, it doesn't feel. I mean, it could be that he got them from the Shadowlands, from a shy, But I, I, I tend to think of it more that that Illyrio got the eggs from from another source, a Westerosi source, whether that's from Ashford or not Ashford, uh, from White Walls or from, um, you know, at the at the end of Robert's Rebellion, you have one character who has the ability to get things in and out of the Red Keep, and that character is Varys. Whether perhaps he got. Dragon eggs from the Red Keep that were left over from the Targaryen era, because we know that the Targaryens tried to keep their eggs around and attempted to hatch them uh, disastrously, as we found out at Summerhall at the end of Aegon the Fifth's reign. Um, but yeah, it, I, I do like this the way that it's in the published version much, 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 much more than George's original concept of uh, of of how Daenerys was supposed to receive her dragons.
2: I do, I do like the idea of Varys. Uh pulling the, drag, the eggs out of the Red Keep. That does fit his character in a number of ways. It's kind of symbolically pleasing. Uh, if I like the idea of him not having actually gotten in out of the keep, as he claims he has done. Uh, but in fact, having just pulled the eggs out, there's just something that's just imagery <laughs> that is, is, is kind of pleasing. There's an, there's an irony there that I like. Um, and I agree. I mean, this is, it's an interesting example of martin's gardener ways and sometimes that gets him in trouble i guess i still mourn that we're not going to see danny get to a shy i think that would have been great yeah Uh, much as i I like her dance plot more than most people do but i still think it's not as good as it could have been because i would have much preferred we get to the ur magic city with all the crazy stuff we've heard that goes on there rather than a book and a half in slaver's bay so it, it can back him into corners but i think he made the much better decision here i think there's, it's much more interesting that Danny gets them as a gift. First of all, it doesn't give it away that they're going to hatch, whereas if she just found them, as soon as you read the paragraph in which Danny finds some dragon eggs in the wilderness, you're like, they're going to hatch. Yeah. They're going to hatch. I know they're going to hatch. They're going to hatch right now. There's no suspense to that, whereas if the way they're presented in this chapter is just a bride gift from a guy who likes to show off how powerful he is and who is like, has a bunch of jewelry, you can plausibly believe your first time through, maybe they're just symbolic. Maybe they're not going to necessarily hatch into dragons. So... I think it's much. It's a much more elegant way of introducing them into the narrative. And there's the great irony that of like we've been saying about Illyrio and Varys' plans going wrong. That Illyrio probably never intended uh, for Danny to hatch these dragons. And this this was just an attempt for him to show off his wealth, and end up backfiring in a way he never intended. I think that's that's much more thematically interesting than Danny just happening to find them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see based on some of the other themes that we talked about of Danny story very much embodying this idea of like dichotomies. You know, the idea of maybe finding those eggs in the desert, like I I always felt that they might be found amongst that uh, giant dragon skeleton by Vase Tolero. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would have been kind of cute you know, the idea of like life coming from a place known for death in the waste but I think that this works better especially if you know we see lots of like shitty things especially if it uh ties into other th- storylines or no sorry sorry especially because it complicates Daenerys uh attitudes towards Pentos later on like we're gonna talk a little more about like where things will go with Pentos but Daenerys is reluctant to raise uh troops or anything against Pentos because of Illyrio because she's like uh if not for Illyrio I wouldn't have dragons ops um <laughs> it's like this is like a huge gift and I cannot just not acknowledge I cannot um fail to show gratitude for that um as for the origin of the eggs I think I don't know I'm torn on one hand I'm like yeah it could have been the Westerosi ones but it the idea of you know once again death or life coming from something that had been thought dead, those turned uh, those eggs that had been thought to be petrified, or it could have been that you know this is another very very far removed, but you know while I'm here, why not talk about this crazy <laughs> idea of it? Someone just maybe it is those eggs from like White Walls and like Eggs Time, and some crazy merchant saw a chance to swindle a lot of money out of a very rich man in pentos who just came into a lot of money from selling off this girl and is like, hey, these are petrified. I mean, like, who doesn't want petrified things? Everyone thinks that things that have been turned to stone over the eons are, like, super cool, can charge way more for that. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: I like that a
1: lot.
0: Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot, too. But those—that's not the only wedding gift that Danny receives. We we talked at length uh, a, a few minu- minutes ago about the the books that Ser Jora gives to Daenerys. But there is—but uh, George has actually talked a bit more about the the books that that George, rather that that uh, that Ser Jorah gave to Daenerys, and some potential plot implications come for the book that's coming out tomorrow, which is *The Winds of Winter*.
1: Yeah, so those books, um, you know, we talked a little bit about its role in bringing Danny closer to her Westerosi roots. But, you know, as they say in um, what sort of role it will play in terms of narrative, in an interview with Vulture Magazine, they talk about Martin and say, Martin is very good at keeping secrets. But he does offer up one tidbit, a reminder that the royal... Daenerys Targaryen, was given the histories of her world as a wedding gift, but were neglected to read them. But you know who does know a lot of that, he says coyly. Tyrion.
0: Ooh.
2: Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it,
0: you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that Danny has actually read some of the books that, that Jorah gave her um, in A Storm of Swords after she conquers Marine. Uh, she. It's mentioned that she, she's read like the romances of of the books, but not the um, not the histories necessarily. I, I'm curious what Tyrion is going to pull from that. What's what it's going to mean for Tyrion? How he's going to translate some of the historical sides of of Westeros to Daenerys. I do think that. Tyrion being that educated, learned person that we talked about in Tyrion's first chapter—that's the way he's introduced, anyways. Will have a major impact on on Danny. I I kind of wonder whether it's going to be one of these things where Tyrion will be like, "You must be more like Jaehaerys the First and Queen Alicent as opposed to." Aegon the Fourth, or your father's, or your father Aerys the Second. Look at these books that you have. You know that that shows all of the abuses of power done by these bad Targaryen kings, and also CF these books too about the 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 ways that the Targaryen kings ruled wisely and well. Um, I I think that may be part of what Martin is hinting at, but I guess we'll have to see what what the, wins the winner will bring on that one.
2: I completely agree. I think that's the most likely payoff here is that Tyrion like synthesizes a cautionary tale from the stories and that right after Danny does something horrible like burns all of Team Egan or something, Tyrion holds those stories up as as an example of how to do better Um, because that fits Martin's overall kind of love-hate relationship with stories and songs where he, you know, constantly casts them as lying or simplifying things but also loves their appeal and... Is obviously writing a giant fantasy story, so he's invented in stories, <laughs> invested in stories and songs in general. So I, I think he hit the nail on the head there, Jefflesworth. I think that's that's probably the dynamic he's going for with this. I also want to say that like, coy- coyly is redundant. Like whenever Martin's talking about the text, I assume it's coy. <laughs> I assume he's, I assume he's being saucy and sassy. You don't need to tell me, Vulture Magazine, that George R. R. Martin is being coy. It's a given.
1: <laughs> is he a coy boy? <laughs>
2: he—he's uh, oh. a he, he's a koi co- soy boy. He's
0: a <laughs> koi soy boy. You should
1: change the name of your it's cast. Like,
0: like the-, the soy boys, <laughs>
1: yeah. um, the koi soy the boys, the koiest of oh soy God. boys.
0: Um.
1: But yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, especially, you know, going back to that book I was reading earlier, medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. The entirety of like the first chapter is devoted to how. A lot of what Martin is responding to is, like, the way fantasy literature has built off of the medievalist romance. And so I just think it's so funny that what Danny's read, uh, he calls the romances, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, love. But, like, so much (laughs) as, like, (laughs) um... You know, that idea of, like, the romantic, uh, that idealism, and that Tyrion has read the histories, quote-unquote the histories. And it just feels so much like George R. R. Martin kind of lecturing, you know, being like, oh, but that's not how history really was. Um, but, you know, George, maybe this isn't really how history was either. (laughs) But we'll get into that maybe a little later. But anyway, so... Excellent point. Especially with Tyrion being his, like, his fave, so...
0: True that. That's
2: a very good point. But yeah, speaking of uh, Danny's future and how we kind of see that in Chrysalis in this chapter, one thing that really interests me on reread about this chapter is that this is one of these scenes that pops up later in Danny's trippy vision quest in the House of the Undying in A Clash of Kings, uh, which is one one of the things that makes Danny interesting and frustrating to analyze is that you don't really have to wonder what the important parts of Danny's story is because The House of the Undying tells you what they are. It just <laughs> doesn't it fully explain them. It's like here's the list of all the important things you're going to do. We're gonna we're gonna let you realize about seventy five percent about what they are, <laughs> but here they all are in a series of images. So that you know that that's what the House of the Undying is kind of useful in Danny's stories. You can kind of see all these important events and this is one of them. In the uh, Bride of Fire section of the House of the Undying prophecy, one of the images is her silver was trotting through the grass to a darkling stream beneath a uh, sea of stars. So that is, of course, referencing her ride with uh, Drogo to the consummation of their wedding in this chapter. So... You know uh, the Bride of Fire section in the House of the Undying has uh, been frequently interpreted as being about Daenerys' marriages, although that's complicated because there's no image referring to hisdar, and maybe hisdar came later after the House of the Undying was already written, so Martin couldn't go back. It might just be more symbolic of her connection to fire and her draconic heritage and destruction, and how that has kind of impacted her life. Because of course, you know, the her marriage to Drogo. As we'll see later on in the book, if Drogo had survived, the major impact of it would have been the Dothraki unleashed on Westeros. So this could be an image referring to Dany metaphorically marrying power and marrying military might and marrying strength. And uh, how that, as as Elena said earlier, the price of power is a recurring theme in Dany's chapters. So this image could be in reference to that. Uh, But for me, more than anything else, the fact that this image pops up in the House of the Undying... Emphasizes that this is really Danny's origin story. This chapter, mm-hmm. you know, Danny one lays out the characters, lays out some of the themes, lays out here's what the plot structure is going to be. But Danny two is like, okay, this is how her story is going to go. The kind of the processes we've been talking about in this episode of assimilation and intimacy and cultural exchange. She's going to be doing this and reenacting this chapter over and over again. Her story: Karth, Astapor, Myrine, Vaestorthac, and from here to Valantis and Pentos, and ultimately Westeros. Uh, so I think that's For me that, that's why this shows up in the House of the Undying you, w- Regardless of what it refers to about Drogo Or fire specifically I think it, it, it comes off to me saying It's throwing down a marker and saying This is where it began This is this is where the Daenerys Targaryen myth starts
0: Amen brother
2: <laughs> That's my line How <laughs> dare you sir Wait
0: as you should, like Drop that the entire cast But
1: <laughs> um... Yeah, I've been well waiting done. to drop an well amen, done, brother, but like... <laughs> There's a drinking try. game now. Yeah, that's true.
0: People have just taken three shots now if they're playing the drinking
1: really? game. Really? Yeah. Wait, has Emmett said it already?
0: It just has to be said, amen, brother. Okay, Their true. fourth shot right there. <laughs> I'm
1: not, I'm not
2: going to say it. it's tainted now. Just everyone's <laughs> using it. I said it when it was cool.
0: No, it's never You're such a hipster. Cool. Um... <laughs> No, I, 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 really don't have anything to add. I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. Is that it's a, it's her origin story, and and that's it comes c- coming up again. The house of the End dying is is a great uh, connection that we have there to uh, that origin story. Then filtering through the the entirety of her arc because she retains that a portion of her Thraci. She retains a portion of her Dothraki identity in throughout the entire story and as we're going to find wins, she's going to be re encountering them again and uh, yeah, we'll see what we'll see how that goes.
2: Not well. Not well, Bob. Not great.
0: <laughs>
1: Not <laughs> Is that your new thing? Not well, Bob? Instead of amen, brother? <laughs> I'm
2: going to have a different catchphrase each episode. Y'all just got to keep up and reinvent the drinking game as it goes. It's a drinking game that changes itself on the fly. Oh, uh, the, right. the gardening. The <laughs> gardening drinking game. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It fits Martin's writing style. Um, and... So, elsewhere in terms of uh, foreshadowing and uh, connections to things happening later in Danny's story, uh, we obviously just left Pentos. Danny's first chapter was set there. Now she's departing. She won't be back, at least within the bounds of the story so far. And we see it a little bit again with Tyrion when he is kind of following in her footsteps in the Dance with Dragons. He re-encounters Illyrio and they depart from the city together. But in terms of the fate of this first of the three cities we uh, spend any time in, there is a line from Sir Jorah that stood out to me upon reread in this chapter. Of, uh, they were talking about how, what, how expensive it is to keep the Dothraki around and everything that goes with the wedding. So The Pentoshi elites are eager to see the back of them. And Jorah says, Best we get Princess Daenerys waited quickly before they hand, health, hand, hand half the wealth of Pentos away to sell swords and bravos. And specifically the phrasing of "sell swords and bravos made me think of the Tattered Prince, who is of course a significant supporting character who shows up in Quentin's chapters in A Dance with Dragons. He's the leader of the sellsword company of the Windblown. And before he founded that company, he was one of the princes of Pentos. One of the quotes that we led the episode off with when we were talking about the questions from our lovely patrons uh, was about – the Illyria was talking about the process of naming a prince in Pentos. So they, they pick one and he goes through these various rituals. And then if things start to go wrong, they symbolically – well, they don't – they quite literally kill him as a symbolic show of, uh, you know – kneeling to the gods and accepting their wisdom and saying, okay, you've sent us a plague. you sent us a war. Clearly we are displeasing you. I uh, was comparing it to, to the lottery. Uh, there's of course plenty of like uh, real world rituals about fertility that that kind of sounds like to me, especially with him betting these symbolic women of, of the fish and the, and, and the flock and so forth. Uh, but the tattered Prince was one of those. He was a Prince of Pentos, but rather than uh, accept the inevitable murder that would end his reign, he fled the city and, and founded his sellsword company. But as we see in A Dance with Dragons, he is never, much like Viserys, he has never lost the dream of home and he's never lost a desire to go back to Pentos and kind of take out the elites who would have done that and rule as, as Prince in his own right without anyone being able to step in and slit his throat if a crop fails. So that line from Jorah might be a hint, uh, handing Pentos over to sellswords and bravos, that the Tattered Prince might be successful in this goal. And we see that develop as a plot point in Dance. Uh, Tattered Prince demands Pentos from Quentin as the price for helping him tame dragons. And then uh, after Quentin dies, Barristan kind of takes on that, uh, that promise. He, he tells Archibald Ironwood, one of Quentin's companions, to make the offer to the Tattered Prince that if the windblown turns cloaks uh, yet again, or actually the second son has turned cloaks many times, if the windblown turns cloaks once over to Danny's side then uh, Barristan will make good on Quent's promise and hand over Pentos to him. And that's despite Dany herself refusing that possibility earlier in the book. She says that, as Eliana said, her obligations to Illyrio uh, lead her to reject that possibility. But if Dany takes a darker turn on the Dothraki Sea, and if she finds that Illyrio has in fact been had Egan in mind as, as his Targaryen monarch this whole time, uh, she might uh, start to... You know, go back on that forbearance and unleash the tattered prince hole on Pentos and hand over the city to him. I do think that's likely to happen. Who knows if Martin had that in mind as early as this first book? But that line about handing Pentos over the cell swords and bravos makes me think, even if he didn't have it specifically in mind, maybe he he had that as Pentos's fate in general. Maybe he didn't have the tattered prince in his mind's eye, but he knew he was gonna have Pentos fall to some mercenaries as a res- as a huh. part of Dany's actions at some point later on.
0: Yeah. And, you know, in the uh, Winds of Winter, the, in the Tyrian Winds Winter sample chapter, we uh, we find out that the Tire Prince indeed turned cloak on the uh, on the Yunkai in the battle, where you have that one of the many uh, Yunkish messengers that arrive at the camp of the Second Sons that Tyrion overhears telling Brown Ben Plum, quote, Gorzak Zo'erres, who's one of the Many Yunkish commanders, not really much of a commander. He's a wise master who took on the role of a commander. is lies slain, cut down by Pentoshi treachery. The turncloak who names himself the Prince of Tatters shall die screaming for this infamy. The noble no, the noble Morgar swears. Brown Ben scratched his beard. The windblown have gone over, have they? He said in a, in a tone of mild interest. So, uh, yeah, it looks like that the Tattered Prince is doing his part in... Uh, turning cloak on, on the Yunkish come the, the battle of fire. And he's going to always want a price for his, uh, for his actions. He never does anything on the cheap. He never does anything for the good of the world or for, uh, the good of anything. He's, he's, he's going to want Pentos back. And I do think that, um, it's going to be interesting because Danny did say, did refuse the Tetter Prince and right before she flies away on from death pit. Um, Having her come back and finding out that Barristan decided to go back on her word is going to be a flashpoint if Barriston survives, which, of course, he's going to survive the Battle of Fire. Um, not to, not that anyone would disagree with that. Anyone of conscience. Certainly or, not. Or nobility. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But yes, but I, I I do think it's it's very likely that uh, when Daenerys finds out that Illyria is backing Aegon, that she may decide that Pentos is worth giving over to the actual devil in the series, and that will be a a, a moment of uh, major thematic importance for Daenerys Targaryen, and uh, kind of sad too. I mean, not that Pentos is a great city. By any stretch of the imagination, it's kind of a bad place, but it can be oh so much worse when you have Satan in charge of the city.
2: Yeah, it's not a free city by any stretch of the imagination. There are those hints that there's de facto slavery inside the walls, especially being run by rich people like like I know the Tattered Prince is no no improvement. When I think about what he would be like in charge of Pentos, I think of the episode of Futurama where they go to like the space civilization that's like has has is like Egypt and has pharaohs and slavery. And then Bender takes over, and then he's like, the cruelty of the old pharaoh is a thing of the past, and everyone cheers, and he just says, let a whole new wave of cruelty wash over this lazy <laughs> land. So that's, I think that's thats the Tattered Prince taking over from the Magisters. He's hes not exactly a breaker of chains, the Tattered Prince. He's a guy who cuts feet off for fun. So his his reign is not exactly going to be delightful.
1: Yeah, maybe if Illyrio hadn't given the other half of Pentos wealth to the other Salsword Company, the Golden Company, this could have all been avoided.
2: Maybe so. Got to think these things through, cheese
0: monger. You fool! <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, like we said, that conversation between Daenerys and the Terror Prince occurs just before Desnecks pit, and when we get to Das Pit, we have Daenerys emerging as a dragon rider, where she flies away from Marine off to the Dothraki Sea. Uh, but we get a little maybe potential piece of foreshadowing hinting going on that Danny will be a dragon rider in this chapter. And it comes right after she is, uh, she's gifted the horse by Drogo, and she's riding this horse around and is feeling all happy and everything like that. But uh, she's so... Here's the quote. The quote is, quote, As she turned to ride back, a fire pit loomed ahead, directly in her path. They were hemmed in on either side with no room to stop. A daring she had never known filled Daenerys then, and she gave the filly her head. Gave the filly her head. That's a weird way of putting it. The silver horse leapt the flames as she had wings. As if she had wings. uh, Unquote. So that's a... uh, To me, it reads like... Uh, foreshadowing that Daenerys, as we'd be leaping over the flames, as if she had wings, those wings being dragon wings, come a dance with dragons, uh, leaping over the flames being another allusion to the drag to dragon fire. Potentially, I might be a little bit on a stretch right there, but it does read that it's a, uh, Uh, at least some narrative foundation for Daenerys as a dragon rider, But it does, you do get a bit more of that in the dragon dream that we have. And this is Dany's first dragon dream. She has several in a Game of Thrones. Um, To read the whole quote, it is, quote, There are no more dragons, Dany thought, staring at her brother, though she did not. Dare say it aloud. Yet that night she dreamt of one. Viserys was hitting her, hurting her. She was naked, clumsy with fear. She ran from him, but her body seemed thick and ungainly. He struck her again. She stumbled and fell. You woke the dragon! He screamed as he kicked her. You woke the dragon! You woke the dragon! Her thighs were slick with blood. She closed her eyes and whimpered. As if in answer, there was a hideous ripping sound and the crackling of some great fire. When she looked again, Viserys was gone. Great columns of flame rose all around, and in the midst of them was the dragon. It turned its great head slowly when its molten eyes found hers. She woke, shaking and covered with a fine sheen of sweat. She had never been so afraid. Um, to me, that looks like foreshadowing of Daenerys and her dragons, gaining her dragons. Also, there is the potential that it is foreshadowing um, Viserys' death as well, since Daenerys dies of fire and blood, I guess, for lack of a better term, when uh, the molten gold is. He gets his crown of gold from Via Drogo. Um, it, it's it's a potential that, that Martin is is, ta- is giving a bit of groundwork and foreshadowing for Daenerys as a dragon rider, something that takes a, a number of years and a number of books to get to and something that we're going to be seeing a lot more come the Winds of Winter, I'm 100% positive of.
2: Agreed. Yeah, I think another one of those situations where he probably didn't have the specifics planned out in his head, but I'm sure he knew Danny would be riding her, her dragons by the end of the series. And of course he knew that the dragon should be born because it takes place at the end of the same book so yeah that's definitely him I think layering in those images Uh, not necessarily for you to catch on the first time or know what they mean but so that when the dragons emerge at the end of the book you're kind of you're mentally primed for it even if you didn't quite realize that's what was going on
1: yeah amen brothers (laughs) fifth shot fifth (laughs) shot
2: there it is I think you have to do two shots for that one so you said brothers it's
0: oh that's true that's the rules
1: (laughs) (laughs) new rules.
0: So that's all of our groundwork and theory discussion for this, this chapter. I'm sure there'll be more things. If you guys want to point out to us, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and email. We've got a number of great tweets and emails about our previous chapters. So keep them coming. Um, But transitioning to talking about some of, Something else, uh, something that's kind of come up a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire, and that we do see here in this Danny chapter is how young Daenerys Targaryen is in marrying Kaldrogo. Danny is all of 13 years old in this chapter. Rob Stark gets married in A Storm of Swords at the age of 15. Sansa is betrothed and wed to Tyrion Lannister at the age of 12, or is it 13? I don't think she's 13 yet when she's, she's married, 12. right? She's 12. Um, but was that actually historically accurate? Is it historically accurate in medieval times, which is something that Martin has said that he's trying to ground Song of Ice and Fire in some sort of medieval realism? Was that realistic to marriage in medieval times? Did people as young as 12 and 13 years old get married? And uh, one of the many reasons that we brought Eliana onto this podcast uh, was to t- kind of talk about some of these concepts because she's done some excellent research about about them.
1: Yeah. So I think, first of all, something that I want to tackle is that idea of, you know, and you started bringing this up in last week's episode um, on John 2, you know, how much we as a reader should even accept this idea and, you know, whether or not we should pass judgment on the characters for this. And I think that, yes, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. And and uh, we'll go into a lot of reasons as to why that is later. Um, but, you know, for starters, the rote answer to the question of did this happen in the Middle Ages, which, of course, spans a whole like century it it spans hundreds of years so there's different kinds of social mores that evolve change throughout the entire time you know which one are we like really talking about and martin uh gives us some grounding in saying that he was initially very much inspired by the war of the roses so we can think maybe sort of like late medieval period into the early renaissance is where he draws inspiration for his fantasy world um And the answer is yes, it happened. I think the question is how common was it? And Mm -hmm. how, like, socially acceptable was it? And what we see is that um, a lot of laws had had it so that there's an age of consent, an age at which people can be married. But, you know, the age at what which one can be married versus the age during when they get married, even today, aren't necessarily the same. Like, people can get married at 18 in the United States or even earlier, but that doesn't happen very often for any number of reasons. Um, But, you know, during the middle ages, late middle ages, you know, you'll find that people tended to wait until like the later teens, or um, you'll find that a lot of them get married more of actually between like the ages of eighteen and twenty-two. There are different sources and different um, ages for a lot of the different populations. Again, the medieval ages spanned a long time; it spanned an, across like an entire world. So there's different cultures and right. different like there's different practices across all of them, and when it comes down to what most people did, they got married later on in life because the fact is marriage had to do as much with running a household and being um, prepared for adulthood, which constituted a whole lot of things um, as much as it was just sealing alliances, especially for common people. Now, when it comes to like those, the nobility, they, yeah, you'll see that people might, schedule betrothals earlier, like, when people are just children, like, as early as five, um, and they might get married earlier, but because of the way biology is, uh, often it wasn't really—marriages weren't consummated, uh, until later on, uh, at least 15 usually— uh, you'll have some outlying examples, and we'll talk a little bit about those, but that's because women's bodies, while you know they might ha- be able to menstruate and might technically be able to become pregnant, that doesn't necessarily mean that the body is developed enough to safely, um, healthily carry a child to term, and even like secure the mother's life to potentially produce more heirs. So that's the way it was in history, and... The books bear us out in this, too.
0: Well, I mean, you have a bunch of examples in the books. Like you have, uh, like like I referenced, you have Tyrion marrying Sansa when she's 12 or 13. Uh, she's 12 years old. And which is not... It, it is very clear that this is out of the norm. Um, and, and and it's, it's made really... Uncomfortable because Tywin is constantly telling Tyrion that he needs to consummate his marriage. Like now he needs to make sure that he gets in there because rumor is getting around to the, around the red keep that he hasn't done anything about it. And that's, um, I think that George paints a, a, a very negative picture around that does he doesn't do it for all the, all the time too. I mean, you, you also have, you also have things like Tommen marries Marjorie and, and Tommen and is, eight years old and Marjorie is 16 or something like that. If I'm not mistaken, uh, they don't consummate their marriage in the books and the show. It's a different story, but yeah, as, uh, do, I guess, I guess my, my question is, do you think that Martin, Martin is writing with this medieval mentality in mind, but does he actually, does, is it actually true? The amount of, of child marriages and child betroths that he, that he has in the books as compared to what we see and say during the timeline of the Wars of the Roses.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my question too. I'm like, I'm curious, is this like a failure of research on his part or is he just going, is it like just a riffing off a stereotype of, well, things were bad for medieval women. I know that therefore I'm just going to crank up the badness to 11 and just, or is it, is it, a, is it just driven by an attempt to make us sympathize and like ground us in this in this particular world. Like what what do you what do you think the aim is here and what do you think the failing
1: is? I think that it's actually you talk about how Tyrion very much inhabits a modern reader's mentality a few casts ago, but I don't think it's just that he's the modern reader mentality. Like that's very much a part of it, but I think that he's also the way he reacts to being betrothed to Sansa Right before they are married, I think is very indicative of what would have been the mindset of other other people in Westeros itself. Like in a "So Spake Martin" about the age of sexual relations in Westeros, George R. R. Martin says that sixteen is the age of the legal majority of um, both for men and for women, and then he says that maidens. So maidens, he said. Um, which would be, you know, between the time that one has flowered, around 11 to 12, and but before that age of majority, which is 16. So maidens may be wedded and bedded. However, even there, many husbands will wait until the bride is 15 or 16 before sleeping with them. Very young mothers tend to have significantly higher rates of death and childbirth, which the maesters will have noted. And, you know, that being the case, like, Tyrion says as much um, you know when he says that he cannot be married to Sansa he goes she is no more than a child and Tywin's like your sister swears she's flowered if so she is a woman fit to be wed you must needs to take her maidenhead so no man can say the marriage was not consummated after that if you prefer to wait a year or two before her bedding again you would be within your rights as her husband and then Tyrion draws that distinction between she being a woman and that being what he uh wants versus how he's and then he thinks that Sansa's is a girl no matter what you say and I think Tywin knows this he knows that Sansa is too young that's why he says if you would prefer to wait a year or two before bedding her again that's within your rights and the fact that Tywin is pressuring uh Tyrion into consummating that marriage earlier actually says more about the political situation of the Lannisters than it does necessarily about Westerosi social mores, you can see this, um, you know, examining the marriages of daughters of various, I guess, English kings. So, um, in Medieval Maidens, Young Women and Gender in England, uh, 1272-1540, a book by Kim M. Phillips talks about some of this. So they say, a close look at the ages of the first marriage of English princesses illustrates these points further. Examining the marriages of the daughters of kings from Edward I to Henry VII, it is clear that though marriage negotiations and sometimes formal betrothals occurred when the girls were very young, they were not married until much later and usually had their first children later still. I'm about to throw a bunch of numbers at everyone.
0: Yeah, we love numbers.
1: Of the 20 princesses, for whom marriages were sought. Some of the other ones died in infancy, and a small number entered nunneries, as one does. (laughs) The mean age at which marriage negotiations were begun or betrothals sought was about five and a half. But those who went on to marry, three died early, as, I don't know, one does. The mean age at first marriage was 16.65. Of these 17 girls, five were married between the ages of 10 and 14, 11 between 15 and 20, And one (laughs) Isabella, the eldest daughter of Edward III, despite marital negotiations beginning in her infancy and a failed betrothal at around 14, not until – she didn't get married until she was 33. Only three of the princesses bore their first child before the age of 20, and – and they say that Henry's precipitous haste in securing these early mess marriages are indicative of his tentative hold on the throne and eagerness to bolster it with powerful alliances rather than of any strong approval of early marriage. And you can see that in the case with Danny's wedding. You can see that in the case with Tywin pressuring Tyrion, even when Tyrion's like, this is weird, no. Um, and, you know, this is also borne out in other instances throughout the series.
0: Well, one of the, the things about Tyrion, though, is in there is a bedding ceremony that occurs in Tyrion and Sansa's marriage. And it's made clear that he wants to have sex with Sansa in that chapter. And it is played almost for... I hate to like kind of throw this on Martin's shoulders, but it is almost played for a bit of shock value. Um, in that we're as the modern reader, we're supposed to come to this with the modern perspective. we I, I do kind of get a real kind of ugh feeling or a reaction, I guess, to to that portion of it. And and I do think the historical side is interesting, and the, and the statistics you have are are interesting too. Uh, and it, that I think your point about Tywin pressuring Tyrion is, is a really good one. That he's doing so because the the Lannister hold on the throne and on Westeros is tenuous at this point. I mean, at the at that point, the Red Wedding still hadn't occurred, and Sansa was the key to the North and the key to bringing the North back into the king's peace. In 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 the uh, events preceding and then succeeding the Wed- the the Red Wedding. Yeah, there's just some really fascinating historical points to to, to bring about to bring into the conversation.
2: I agree. I love that point, Eliana, about, yeah, about Tyrion's reaction kind of showing that this is not within the normal bounds of what's being asked of, of Westerosi nobles, that his resistance kind of gives away that that Tywin's pushing the line here. And that does fit so well with Tywin's character in general. Uh, his, his violence and his uh, specifically violence towards women is a consistent, repeated kind of motif in Tywin's story, so it does fit that he would be the one to do something that was seen as shady, even by Westerosi standards on this question.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even Ned points out he's surprised when Robert's like, let's betroth Sansa and Joffrey. And he's like, ah, uh, she's so young. She, he's like, she's only 11. And Robert reassures him that marriage can wait a few years. You know, we see that That's true. Uh, Westeros does skew a, lit a bit closer to what we're talking about of that mean age of marriage um, in that Catelyn was betrothed to Brandon when she was 12, but she didn't marry him. Like, they waited to schedule that marriage ceremony until uh, she was at least 17 or 18. And even, I mean, Viserys' questions, like, does Drogo really want his women this young?
0: Yeah. I guess the answer is yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Rick,
2: then that's the question so if so, if Martin is demonstrating understanding that this is unusual, that this isn't wasn't necessarily the norm in medievalism, what is he trying to what's he trying to do with it then? What's his goal by having this become a repeated part of the story? Is it for shock value? Is it because he's trying to exaggerate to make an overall point about how hard medieval structures are on women? Or is he? Is it? Or is it kind of exploitative and maybe not the most uh, defendable part of the story? What do you guys think?
0: It's a hard question.
2: That's why I asked. Him. <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: um, I can't presume to know. I guess. What do you think? Um, I'm gonna throw a question back at you. So, based on what we do see, because we haven't really discussed the scene. Us not necessarily knowing why George wrote it that. I mean, we, we, we've made some claims of what he could have been trying to say, but what do you think that the scene does?
0: I think he, he, the scene between what it does for Daenerys is, is that it gives her, gosh, it gives her a sense of control, maybe even a slight amount of consent. I, I mean, I, I, we we get a kind of some some controversial topics when you talk about that because Daenerys is only thirteen years old when the, when the scene takes place, um, and how much is, is she aware of, of what she's doing in this scene is something that's 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 a hard question to grapple with, in, in my mind at least. Um, I, it does, speaking personally, it, it it's obviously an uncomfortable scene because of the age disparity. For me, it's not the the sexuality that's at that's at stake there. It's it's how different they are the the life experiences of Drogo being a warrior, a nomadic warrior who's fought his way across the Dothraki Sea and beyond, marrying Daenerys Targaryen, and he's thirty and she's thirteen. It does have a an uncomfortable feel to it. Um, in my mind, um, I don't know. I I I feel almost like it's it's. Starting, it's the process of Daenerys taking her own destiny into her own hands, if, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that you guys read it, but that's kind of what I the feel I get from that that scene.
1: Fun fact, she's 12 in the novella.
0: Not oh. that that Oof. helps. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm definitely not. laughs> that
1: makes it worse, but...
2: I like the tone of the scene. It's very unexpected for me. I remember very clearly reading it the first time through and just... Expect, I was expecting what I was expecting was what we got with Ramsay and Jane's sex scene in Dance with Dragons, where it cuts off, the chapter ends right before it really gets horrifying. Uh, I was expecting that with Danny and Drogo, something like that, the first time through. Uh, And I wasn't expecting this kind of unexpectedly sweet and kind of tender scene. And like I said earlier in the episode, I like that it pairs it down to the most basic elements of and building blocks of communication and trust, just yes and no. I I think that's... a really disarming and interesting way of going about addressing these kind of issues that we've been bringing up. What I don't like about it is the context of it that Martin seems to move on from it like it didn't really mean much because in the next chapter, Drogo is brutally assaulting Danny every night and not asking no one yes and not being remotely sweet and not seeming to care about any of those things he cared about in the previous chapter, and that could just be because it was the wedding night and it was a one-time thing, it was the consummation, whatever. But it's not really justified in universe. So what comes off to me is like Martin is doing whatever he feels like is going to get a reaction out of the reader in the moment. And he's not really, there's not really a through line here with Danny and Drogo, uh, that she, it kind of falls back to zero for me in their next chapter. And then they have to build it back up. And so that, that makes me like it less because it feels like he's not fully thinking through the implications of this very fraught relationship. I still, I still think it's a really interesting scene. I still like the tone. I still like it a lot, but I remember liking it less once I got to Danny Three and seeing it in context.
0: Do you guys find, and and I'm I'm asking a question that I know the answer to, but do you think that the show, the show's version of this scene, kind of course corrected that way, at least made it more consistent what what's going on between. Drogo and Daenerys, because it's not a tender scene; it's it's very much a, a rape scene, um, which then continues throughout some of Danny's season one arc. Uh, it, it, is that a better, more congruent way that they did it, or do you prefer the way that Martin does it here and then later on in, in Daenerys three and beyond?
1: I I'm, I'm gonna just like preface the answer with every all of it is like complicated. I think that the way the show plays it um is more consistent with what we see later and i in some ways feels more honest not the idea of like quote unquote authenticity as we were discussing earlier but it feels more honest in that <sighs> as Emmett was saying, there's that great contrast between no and yes, and how the chapter is supposed to be playing, I think, with our expectations of what we think the Dothraki are, like what Danny sees them as when she's initially afraid. And um, that idea of assimilation, as one gets to know the people within the culture. And again, that idea of no versus yes is nice. But I think that it feels very, it feels like Martin had this idea that he thought was going to be very clever. And it is very clever. But the part, the fact is, it's an artifice. Like, Danny shows up. She's terrified going to the river. It's a river, right?
0: She's, stream. Yeah. Stream.
1: She's going to a stream and she's terrified she doesn't want to be doing it when it, And then she doesn't want to be undressed, but Drogo undresses her regardless of what she wants. And he says no. He tells her what to do. And he touches her despite the fact that she doesn't want to be touched until eventually, what, she's more pliable? And I just think that the show's version is a bit more honest in that Danny's marriage with Drogo starts out unconsensual. It isn't isn't consensual she lives through a lot of assault and i think that martin had an idea of what he wanted to do and in some way sort of pigeonholed that scene to become a nice moment but it wasn't necessarily the right way to write it
0: hmm. i like that
2: i think you nailed it yeah uh yeah i don't think we're going i don't think we're going to uh, put a capper on it better than that
0: no i think you're, um, you're absolutely right yeah like like Emmett said, I think that's that really does sum up really well the different and uh, uncomfortable dynamics that are that are present in Danny's arc, uh, especially in this chapter, and will be explored in greater depth in Daenerys three and Daenerys four as well. But yeah, I think that about covers this chapter. I think that's uh, that's about it. So uh, thanks everyone for for listening to us and. You know, Eliana, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a lot of fun having you on with us uh, us today.
2: Damn straight.
1: Amen, brothers. <laughs> it's so fun <laughs> getting to say it on the cast. Okay, sorry. Thank you so much <laughs> for inviting me so that I can be it. <laughs> People, I know,
2: right? It's pe- the best life. Everyone has to understand.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> People have now taken like six shots. So they're like real fucked up at this point. <laughs> if they're like drinking along.
1: Uh, that's my
2: We're goal. are responsible for so much drunk driving.
0: That's right. I'm just, we, we apologize in advance. Uh, Eliana, where can we find you and your stuff on, on social media and, and on the podcast world?
1: Yeah. So where can you find me? In the wind, in the stars. Um, you can find me
0: <laughs>
1: on Reddit always. As Glass Table Girl, um, so that's Glass underscore Table underscore Girl, um, <laughs> on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit alongside Jeff somewhere there. Ooh, um, you can also find me on the Maester Monthly podcast, a podcast where we highlight the hottest takes, the nicest catches, and just some great ideas all around from the subreddit. Uh, and we have a new episode out. Uh, about redemption. Not so shit. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new episode out about resurrection that Jeff ha- joined us for um, that just came out. So tune in for that. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. And you can also find me on Twitter as arithmetric. It's going to be linked. I am going to spell it once again. Um, or you can try and search for Sailor Moon Blood. I'm probably still under that name right now. Um, and yeah, catch me on Maester Monthly. And I will have soon a new cast coming out with Chloe, a.k.a. Queen of Love and Booty, called Girls Gone Canon. It's also going to be a reread, but focused on characters, doing the character read oh. through. Yeah, that's what we decided on. That's a good,
0: uh, good name for the podcast.
1: I think Natalie came up with it.
0: Indeed, oh, there you go. Yeah. That's not surprising. I mean, no. about right. that's
1: how all these casts work, right? Someone names, you, you go to a trusted source to to find the name of the cast, right?
0: Yeah.
2: You you find your best British housewife and you ask her what she thinks. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that's that's how we name our podcast. I mean, my right. my joke um,
1: my joke there was there. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, that's uh, that's that's great. Uh, everyone, listen to that Maestro Monthly episode on Resurrection, or I'll ban you, or block you, or both, and uh, and and check out the the new cast that Eliana and uh, and Chloe will be a part of, it, and that's going to be a lot of fun to to listen to you guys. So, uh, again, thanks so much for coming on with us today,
1: and thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, solid uh, it's our best outro, outro I ever
1: I can't tell if you're being sarcastic so- I start? okay whatever sorry no Did no you know. no keep it going it's-
2: and uh, you can find us on social media as well of course uh, at not cast, ASOIF on twitter or at our email not a cast, A-S-O-I-F, at gmail.com you can find our patreon at patreon.com forward slash not ASOIF if you want to be first in line for special episodes or listening to episodes like this one early or just want a, a shout out at the end of each episode, consider tossing a few bucks our way. More individually speaking, you can find me at Twitter at Quentin and at poorquentin.tumblr.com.
0: And you can find me at Brendan B Fish on Twitter, Brendan B fish on Brenda fish on Reddit. And you can uh, find my website at wars and politics of ice and fire so join us next week for our bros that are going to be on a road trip to King's Landing when we return back to Westeros with Edder 2. So we are finally, finally leaving Winterfell. Not forever, of course. Um, but we are on our way down to King's Landing where much of the major action from A Game of Thrones will unfold as we progress.
2: Bros! We will see them react to the...
0: Bros!
2: <laughs> bros! <laughs> and we will see them react... We will see them react to the events in this chapter, actually. Robert and Ned bring up the marriage of Daenerys and Khal Droga. So we'll see how the events of this chapter uh, are dealt with on the Westerosi side of the Narrow Sea. So see you next week, everybody. Bye. Bye. And thank you to our patrons, our Lord Commander of the Kingsguard patrons, Sir Mark N. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you to our Kingsguard, that is Sir Spank, my Tater sir philip t sir matthew d sir j b sir peter f sir mormutz sir patrick d
2: and thank you to our sworn sword patrons who are sir ben sir adam a lady rachel r lady stephanie v sir adam l sir clint w sir dan z lady fanny lady katriona p lady emma s sir chris k sir eli m Lady June C., Lady Suki, Sir Rob L., Sir Alexane, Sir Travis M., Sir Keith J., Sir Matt L., uh, Lady Joyce S., Lady Emily A., Sir Mangu the Mage, Sir Corey H., Lady Erin, Sir T J W, Lady Courtney S., Sir Gibb, Sir Andre N., Lady Sarah, and Sir Manu.
0: And thanks to our poor fellows, Lady Adriana B, Lady Amy D, Lady Jennifer W, Sir Gregor M, Sir John R, Lady Mercedine, Lady Beth B, Lady Sonia T, Lady Laurie, Sir Philip T, Sir Jacob R, Sir Ryan, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Javi M, Sir Juhani S. Sir Patrick 84. Sir Nikolai H. Sir Jesse H. Sir Andrew Z. Sir A. Sully 8018. Sir Alan C. Sir Russian Machine Never Breaks. Sir My Lady Matija D. Sir Evan. Sir Clay S. Sir Casey Meredith. Sir Steve Miranda. Sir Fiff
2: Horsbane, Sir Stefan B. Lady Rita Unbound, Sir Joshua M, Sir Taylor O, Sir Tom F, Sir Jason P, Sir Ewan S, Sir Andrew G, Sir Alex A, Sir Paul R, Sir Michael D, Sir Ray of Light, Sir Mark W, Sir Lone Stark State, Sir Gary M, Sir Adam M, Sir Peter M, Sir Joseph S, uh, Sir M J A. Sir Jordan R, Sir Mike S, Sir Ben, Sir Choner, you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, probably. Sir Osian G, Sir Andrew P, Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Patrick B, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D, Sir J Bite, Lady Charlotte B, Lady Jennifer M, Sir Tim W, Sir Biffy Clegane, Sir Mary R.H., Sir Nicholas M, Sir One of Thousand, uh, Lady Datura D, Sir Tom W. Sir Kyle D. Sir Adam Lestrange. Sir Matt M. Lady Catherine. Sir Raymond K. Lady Stephanie H. uh, Sir Line H. Sir Scott R. Lady Chiara. Lady Heather R. Lady Kathy M. Sir Andrew M. Sir Chad I. Sir Swing, Lady Rain F. Lady Alexandra M.
0: Sir Johan P. Sir Andrew S sir david k lady vanessa c sir andrew b lady bonnie sir josh b sir scott c lady lucy s lady sarah c sir craig m sir james r w sir michael lady alison m sir robert h lady evelyn s lady rachel a sir my lady fitter lady Bree b lady san sir derek o Sir Cyrus M. Sir, my lady, Dulcie L. Lady Erica P. Sir Andrew H. Sir Timothy W. Lady, sir, my lady, Ephemerita Lady Christine H. And finally,
2: our uh, Sparrows Tear. Sir Lucifer means Lightbringer. Uh, Sir, my lady, Purple Kitty. Sir Andrew M. Sir Bobby the Knight. Lady Steph B. Sir Waldo B. Sir Mark L. Sir Tom. Sir Milady Tantasy. Sir Jerry G. Sir Edward H. Lady Francisca H. Sir Timothy U. Sir Michael G. Sir Daniel L. Sir Milady Red R. Sir Lucas K. Sir Rasmus B. Sir Robert M. Sir Simon A. Lady Lola P. Sir Jason M. Sir Milady Piles or Peels. Lady Lyrae. Sir Kurt, Lady Sarah L, Lady Sarah M, Sir Ryan N, Lady Sabrina S, Sir Milady Stormpius, Sir Ryan I, Lady Laura H, Sir Thomas W, Sir Roger the Knight, Lady Cathy S, Sir Christopher V, Sir Anne Milady, History of Westeros, Sir David B, Sir Chris M, Sir Ben T, Sir Sam with an umlaut, so I'm going with Sir Sam B and uh, Lady Stephanie E. Thank you so much. Everybody.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. And if we mispronounce your name, we apologize. Send us an email. Shoot us a message on Patreon. And if you like a special title, also let us know that as well. So thanks everyone for listening, and take care. The Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music you hear is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, And the closing song is called A Last Goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will see you all next week.